It's great to be worshiping together with you all here. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you joining online as well. We continue our series with Flip the Script today. Uh, Let me ask you, how many of you have played Hide and Go Seek before? Let me see online. Give a thumbs up if you've played Hide and Go Seek before. It's a game that's as old as time. We've played for a long time as a family. We used to play it all the time. We actually still play it once in a while, and it's kind of fun. It's getting harder, though, as we're getting older. It was a lot easier when our kids were younger to, to find them. Uh, I, I remember it was my time to, to count and, you know, count, be the seeker. So I counted and then, you know, count down and ready or not, here I come. And I remember turning the corner and seeing this. I just had to stop right there and take a picture. That was one of the ultimate best hiding spots ever in the history of the world. This was Anaya. She's 10 now. I think she was two at the time and obviously made it very easy to find her in that, in that moment. But she thought she was completely hidden. It was great. Um, you know, as, as you get older and as you get bigger and as you get taller, it gets a little bit harder for me to hide now. It's not kind of fair when we play. They can hide like under the sink somewhere or in the corner, but, but I got to like find, um, you know, more difficult places. I, I had one spot a few years ago in another house we had um, in our closet. We had this uh, wooden built like shelf thing where we'd store like suitcases up top. And uh, so when it was time to hide, I moved one of the suitcases and I climbed up on top of that, uh, which wasn't very stable necessarily, but I found a great hiding spot so much so nobody could find me. Shannon couldn't find me. The girls couldn't find me. Have you ever had that good of a hiding spot? I mean, where nobody finds you. Then you get to that point though, right? When you're there and now you're either getting really uncomfortable, <laughs> it's getting really hot, you're kind of getting bored, you start hearing everybody else is almost giving up, they're starting to play, they're starting to laugh, they're having a good time, and so what do you do when you're hiding that way? It's like, <whistles> anyone else do that? You start having to give clues, right? It's like, I'm here, come on, find me, and, and eventually, you know, you give up the clues, and, you know, they found me surprised at that spot. But ultimately, we all long to be found. Every single one of us wants to be found. None of us wants to stay in hiding for a long time. And I think some of us even here this morning, we can hide in plain sight. It's different than hide and go seek where we're out of sight, out of mind. We could be hiding right now. There's things that we are hiding maybe in our lives that we don't want anyone to know, either from our past, maybe something currently that we're dealing with, that we're struggling with. Maybe it's loneliness or depression and you put a smile on your face and you head out and act like everything's okay. Maybe there's an addiction you're actively struggling with, but here you are and you're watching, you're in this place, and and yet we want to cover it up, we want to mask it. But maybe we're more like Anaya hiding over there. Maybe we're not hiding it as well as we think. But not only are we hiding from other people, we're we're trying to hide from God. Maybe maybe it's that we're not hiding from as much as we're running from him. Or maybe, you know, we've been hurt in the past by the church or by a leader or by someone who claimed to be a Christian and we thought, eh, I'm done with it. And maybe, again, God has brought you here today or you're watching today um, just to, out of curiosity, out of hunger, out of maybe going, ah, maybe there's something more. You know, we, we try to hide from God. We try to hide from others. But listen, ultimately, every one of us longs to be found. Ultimately, every one of us needs to be found. I mean, that's what's so important is that, that we want to be restored. We want to be brought back into the presence of other people and into right relationship with God. And so today we're going to look at some stories where Jesus flipped the script, both for his audience, the people who were listening, that he surprised them, and even within the stories of how they turned out. And, and these are stories about finding and seeking and how when we are found or when we are seeking, Jesus wants to flip the script in our lives. We're actually going to look, uh, we're going to be ambitious today. We're going to look at three stories, three parables that are all found together in Luke chapter 15, and it's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. These are some of the most well-known stories uh, in, in the Bible that Jesus taught, and especially the parable of the lost son. And so we're going to tackle these today, 
And then over the next two weeks, we're not going to look at parables. We're going to look at how Jesus flipped the story of the life that he came to bring on Palm Sunday and on Easter. So getting excited for those days. But today, we want to do these three parables today. Are you guys ready? Can we do three? Are you all excelling students that are overly ambitious and want to say, let's do three today? All right, all right, online, you with me? We're going to do three today. All right, we're going to start. These are all going to be in Luke chapter 15, and uh, we're going to begin with the context here that Luke is setting up as he's telling these, going to tell us the stories that Jesus told. Begins like this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, let's just pause real quick right there. What strikes you about that, that verse? Who came to listen to Jesus teach? We think it's religious folks, right? It's people who go to church, who went to the temple, like those that, that already, you know, have it all figured out. No, notorious sinners, tax collectors, those were the ones who were coming. There's something about Jesus' teaching, how he taught, what he said, that, that drew them closer to him. So they were there, they were in the audience. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So what we have here is we've got a very diverse audience, Sinners and tax collectors who are on one side, and you've got religious leaders and Pharisees, the ones who are very righteous on the other. And if you've ever done any kind of public speaking or preaching or teaching or holding a seminar or presentation, you've got to know your audience, right? You want to speak to your audience. How do you speak to this audience? Completely different ends of the spectrum. And yet Jesus was going to speak to both of them together. And one group was, was just struggling with the other. The religious leaders struggled that Jesus would hang out and, and teach and even eat with such notorious sinners. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, they had life um, figured out in the sense that they wanted to follow the law to the, letter, to the letter of the law. And so when they looked at the world around them, they saw everything as black and white, in and out, clean or unclean. And if you associated with somebody who was unclean or who was out or who was a sinner, it would bring down your righteousness. You could be contaminated by that. Your standing before God would fall. And so they tried to separate themselves out. Again, who's in and who's out? And so they're probably struggling in that teaching environment. Like, why are these people here? Jesus, uh, if you're going to teach as a rabbi, then, then we should be the ones listening. But then they struggled even with that he ate with sinners. See, we've lost that art of inviting people around our table for, in a large part in our culture. And this last year hasn't really helped, right? I mean, how many people have we had around our tables in our homes? And we miss that. And I think we're going to look forward to those times again. But there's something about inviting somebody to your table that, especially in that culture, was reserved for those that you would honor, that you would show respect to, that you would value. You would invite them to the table. The last thing a Pharisee would do was to invite somebody who was a sinner to their table because you would be saying, well, if I associate with them, how is that going to look on, reflect on me? How is that going to affect my standing? And so these Pharisees didn't want to have anything to do with that. But Jesus, it says, ate with them. And what we see here, Jesus' table always had room for everyone, including and especially sinners. A very different mindset around his table, especially sinners. They were welcomed at Jesus' table, uh, whether it was literally eating with them or figuratively as we talk about the kingdom of God. And so I think about us as, uh, as a church. Most of us, many of us, followers of Christ, some of us on the journey seeking, but if you're a follower of Christ, how many times in the last year or even pre-pandemic have you had folks who would be considered notorious sinners at your table in your home? Or maybe going out to lunch in that way, and not just because, you know, you just happened to be there, but you invited them, you, you, you know, wanted to have that relationship with them. How many of us would be accused by religious folks of saying, you have way too many notorious sinners as friends? Why are you always hanging out with notorious sinners? 
Or what would somebody, would, would any non-believers, would they consider you their friend? Would they say, you're, you're my friend. I've got some great friends and they're believers, even though I'm not. You see, what happens is, over time, most people who become followers of Christ lose their friendships with those who are not followers of Christ within the first two years. Statistics begin to show that the longer you're a follower of Christ, the less friends you have that are not believers. And, uh, you know, it's, now, it's no surprise that we like to have friendships with people who are more like us than different than us. That is just a common uh, fact around, you know, people in America, around different cultures, because friendships, for many, are you're looking for common interests. You share things. You share some values together. That's what makes a friendship. But, of course, we need to have friendships that cross the spectrum and in different ways. And, and statistics show, though, that there's a, a challenge that especially is faced by those who are followers of Christ. Barna, who does a lot of studies and says, yeah, Americans like friendships that are more similar to them than, than others in certain ways, but it says this, evangelical Christians are less likely than most to have friends who are different from them, particularly when it comes to religious beliefs, ethnicity, and political views. So what's the saying about those who are evangelical Christians? We hang out with people who believe, look, and vote like us. We like that. We want to be connected to those who have the same values and hold on to those things. And what's happening is it's keeping us from engaging with the world around us and connecting. And so here's the accusation that, that Jesus is spending time with them. And the religious Pharisees, they're the ones who are trying to pull away and keeping just to themselves. And so into this context, Jesus is now going to speak. And remember the audience, again, a wide range. And I would say this morning, we cover a wide range here and online. Everything from religious Pharisees to notorious sinners. Which side of the spectrum do you fall on? <laughs> Raise your hands? No. Uh, but obviously it covers the spectrum, and Jesus is now going to try to speak into that. So he tells two stories, uh, three stories, and I want to begin with the first two here. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. I'm going to just read them to you. You ready for story time? And I just want you to listen, because there wouldn't have been words on a screen when Jesus first taught these stories as well. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So Jesus is telling these stories, the first, of these, the first two of these three parables. And what I want to look at is seeing what are some similarities and what do we learn from that. And so there's five parts in each of these parables that I want to go through real quick, and we're going to see how it also uh, plays out in the third parable. So the first is this. Something valuable is lost. A sheep or a coin. Something valuable is lost. And, and Jesus is trying to make the point right off the bat that, that, that when something valuable is lost, we begin to make a search for it. There's something of value. The sheep had value to the shepherd. The coin had value to the woman. 
Now, we might say, did the sheep really have that much value? How easy could it have been for the, the shepherd to say, you know what? I've got 99 sheep that are doing what they're supposed to do. I've got one boneheaded sheep who's rebellious, who's walking off, serves it right, it's lost. I'm not gonna risk the 99 for the one. The value is with the 99. If you put dollars and cents to it, where's the value? It's with the 99. But Jesus is making the point in these parables, it's valuable, the one is valuable. The coin is valuable and it needs to be brought back. It needs to be restored. Second is this, an all-out search is required. An all-out search. The shepherd leaves the 99. He goes after that sheep. The woman is cleaning the house. She's turning it upside down. She's gonna find that one. When something valuable is lost, an all-out search is required. I remember losing one of my sheep one time. It was my daughter. It was our third daughter. It was Annika. And uh, Shannon and I and our family, we had visited family in, in Oklahoma City, and we went to the Oklahoma City Zoo. And we went not just with our family, but a couple of our other families, extended relatives, and there was a whole group of us, and we were enjoying the zoo and seeing the different exhibits. And I remember we went into some building that had some exhibit in there, and uh, Shannon and I just said, you know what, um, we're going to go ahead and just wait for you guys outside, and just we'll wait for you all to come out. So Shannon and I sat down and waited for a few minutes, and eventually the rest of the family kind of started trickling up and around, and we look, and there's no Annika. Our third oldest isn't, isn't there. And so we're thinking, okay, uh, guys, where's Annika? What's going on? Um, and like most parents and all of us, we'll just check real quick where she is. She probably got stuck just, you know, looking at one of the animals. So we go back inside the exhibit. She's nowhere to be found. And you start getting those anxious feelings inside, like, okay, she was supposed to be like right here. Not, this is not good. And we start backtracking and start looking everywhere. We can't find her. And when you're ever in that situation, you know that every minute feels like an eternity. It feels like an hour. And our hearts are starting to kind of get that sick feeling. So we're running around and we got a bunch of us kind of spreading out. We can't find her. We, we notify some of the, the zoo staff. Thankfully, they've got radios. They're going to be able to cover the whole, the whole park. They assured us this happens all the time and you don't care, but not with my kid, right? It doesn't matter. It happens all the time. It's my kid. And so we're hopeful that's good. But nothing. We described to her, you know, to them how she looks, what she was wearing, and nothing. And the minutes continue to pass. The minutes continue to pass. And at that point, I'm kicking into like major dad protective mode. I'm like, I'm going to go find my lost sheep. I'm going to head them off at the exits. Well, I booked with my brother-in-law. We went to the parking lot. There was like, there were two exits. We covered the exits. We literally, I stopped every car. I didn't care if I had security clearance or nothing. I'm like, you're stopping. I was like, I want to look in your car. You are not leaving if my daughter is in your car. I'm going to go to the, that place. That's what I did. And uh, time kept passing. And I, I couldn't remember how long it was. And my wife reminded me it was 45 minutes that we waited. I mean, at that point, you start thinking, I think she's, she's gone. Like, I don't know what, what's going on. And uh, we're just sick about it. And then, thankfully, at one point, we get the call, and they said, come meet us at, you know, the, wherever you check in, like customer entry people place there, relate, customer relation, uh, who cares? That's where we're supposed to meet. And, uh, and there's, I remember her coming, pulling up, and she's in the golf cart with one of the zoo employees, and, you know, and, and we just, she ran up, and we just embraced her, and we just hugged her, and we were just so excited to have her. Something of great value was lost. I mean, it couldn't have been easy, it could have been easy for me to say, um, you know, I've got three perfectly good daughters who are obedient, who didn't run away, who follow the rules, who know where they're supposed to be. I'm going to focus on them. She was lost, treats her right. No, no, I mean, you know, we put our attention on the one who is lost. We didn't put our attention on the three that we had. They were taken care of. They were fine. And once you came back, we gave a party. We celebrated for the one. So what we see is something valuable is lost. It, an all-out search is required. The third part is this, what's lost is found 
and restored in each of these stories. It's brought back to where it's supposed to be, just like Ganiah was brought back into our family. It's brought back into the place where it needed to be. The one with the hundred, the coin with the others, back in their owner's care, the shepherd's care. And then the fourth is this, it's party time. Being found is cause for great celebration. It could be so easy to say, why would you even party? That's what kind of strikes me about these parables. Would a shepherd really throw a party because a sheep was lost? Wouldn't it just be like, okay, the sheep's back. Get back with the others. Get back to what you were doing. Ah, there's that coin. Put it back in. Party's over. Why would you call your neighbor? Why would you call the others? Why would you celebrate? Because Jesus is trying to make a point. In the kingdom of heaven, there's something more going on. Remember, parables talk about something that we can understand to help us understand a kingdom reality. And he makes the point very clear in this fifth point, right? The eternal priority of one sinner returning to God. It's the eternal priority of one sinner returning to God. Verse seven said this, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So he's telling these two stories. And I can just think about the audience. Remember the audience that we have? I can see tax collectors and notorious sinners going, woo, woo, yeah, Jesus, you tell them, right? There's more rejoicing in heaven over the one that's lost. You know, we went looking for that. And, and the, the Pharisees might be feeling kind of quiet, <laughs> starting to recognize maybe what's going on here. What's Jesus trying to get at? What's he trying to say? Because they heard that word righteous, the 99 righteous, and that heaven isn't celebrating that as much as it is the return right now of the one lost sinner. But the reminder here again is of our value. Every single one of us, every single one of you, every single one, tremendous value, a value to God. And then he goes on, to that when he has their attention, now he goes on to the next story. This is perhaps the, the best story of all time ever told. It's definitely what, one of my favorites, if not my favorite parable, and it's the parable of the lost son. So let's uh, listen to Jesus' telling of the story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this young, younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired hands have food enough to spare, and, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers and sandals for his feet. And kill the fattened calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. But the story wasn't finished. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. 
When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. It's an amazing story that has given hope to so many for so many centuries. A beautiful story, a beautiful picture where now Jesus moves from just the abstract of a sheep and a coin and he actually paints a picture of a family, a father and some sons. We understand that the father in the story is God and the sons, are that's us. And he's thinking about his audience that Jesus is teaching. And so he, he covers these same, the same parallel to the stories that he did before, these same five points. So something of value is lost and has wandered off. That something of value is a person. It's the younger son. And here's the crazy thing, right? He, just, he, he was allowed to leave. He was allowed to take the father's estate and just, just wander off. What father does that? Well, father says, here's my inheritance. He knew what the son was going to do, that, that the son wasn't going to be responsible with that. And yet the father gave him the choice to do that. He, he allowed him to walk off. And sheep just kind of wander. And here's the thing. It's not just when we're younger, but this can happen at any stage in our life. And I think the old hymn really captures this well and come thou fount of every blessing. Remember the, the line in that song? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that crazy that we can be followers of Christ and we can have given our lives to him and we can still be prone to wander? Not just one time in our life, but that there's something that can pull us away. Well, this son was prone to wander. He was pulling, so going somewhere else. Something of value has, has left. His son had left. Well, the second thing, an all-out search is required. Now, what strikes you different about this parable than the other two in this case? There's no search. Why is there no search going on? What's happening here? Jesus just was telling these three stories and now he breaks. What's going on in the story? Why is there no search going on? Well, for one, is, I mean, is a, is a human is different than a, than, a, than a sheep or a coin. The human can, you know, the, the boy, the son can walk back. He can return. But God gives us the freedom. He gives us the, the freedom of choice. To, he's not gonna force us back. He's not gonna compel us back. He's gonna leave it up to us. But you know what was interesting is anyone listening at that time would have probably picked up on the fact that the older brother should have gone and gotten him. It was the older brother's responsibility to go and find the younger son. When the money ran out, when he heard there was a famine, when the son wasn't coming back, the older brother should have said, it's my responsibility to go and find him and to bring him home. But in the story, as Jesus is speaking, and he's telling to tell us there's an all-out search, what he's trying to communicate is he is the older brother. Jesus is the older brother. He is the firstborn. He is the one who has made an all-out search for us. And he's coming and he's looking. He came from heaven to try to find us. But where is the search in the story? It falls on the older brother. And why isn't the father searching for him? But what do we see about the father? The father is doing what? He's anxiously waiting, right? It says every day you can picture that dad just longing and waiting and just hoping. And when he sees the sun on the horizon, he is ready at a moment to embrace him. He's waiting. 
The third part here is this. What's lost is found and restored. What's lost is found and restored. Well, the son is lost and the son thinks he's lost. He actually recognizes that while he's gone and while he's out living and living life large and he kind of hits the bottom, he realizes when he says, I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He understood what happened. He broke the relationship. He, he stepped out and he thinks himself, I am out. Just like sinners and tax collectors, they were made to be aware all the time. You're out. You're no longer worthy of being considered a child of God. You're out. You've messed up. And you think about the father, what, a, what, a, you know, what would a father do? In, especially in that culture, if something like that had happened, you would never fully restore your son. You would say, you have broken the bonds of our family. You have dishonored our family. You have just shown yourself an unworthy son. I may consider taking you back as a hired hand. You can earn it back. You can pay it back. Let's, you know, but, but what did this father do in the story? The, what's lost is found and is fully restored. He doesn't, the father, when he sees the repentant heart, when he sees the brokenness in that son's spirit, he doesn't even have to go into any other explanation except to say, get a robe, put it on him, get a ring, put it on his fingers, put some sandals on him. He is a son of mine, a full son, and he restores him into full relationship. I mean, this has got to give us hope. This has got to give all of us confidence that if we fear coming to God or if you think you're too far away from God, that he is willing and he makes it clear in his word that this is a father who wants to fully restore what is lost. And then when he's done that, what's next? The fourth part in all these parables, party time, right? Being found is cause for great celebration. And we might think if the son comes back, it's like, just like you might think, well, the 99 sheep, the one comes back, just get back in the pen and do what sheep do. Okay, son, you want to be a son, you're back. Go join your brother. He's out on the field, so he could probably use a hand right now, right? Makes sense. If you're the older brother, you'd think that's what should, should happen. But this father decides instead, let's throw a party. Did this son deserve a party? He just wasted all the money. Now, why are we wasting money on a, on a party? This is the flip the script piece that Jesus is trying to help us understand that it's cause for great sin, celebration when a sinner returns. Verse 23 and 24. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Jesus loved telling about parties and that there should be a party and things should happen. And there was music and dancing and celebration. There was a feast. And it would be great if the story ended there, right? Because it would follow the other three stories, the same five pattern. But then the story flips. The older brother. What happened with the older brother? He was out on the fields. He heard the party, but his reaction was very different. Why are you throwing a party? Why are you doing this? Verse 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. He didn't want to have any part of it. He was a real party pooper. He was just, no, we're not doing it. We're not celebrating the brother, my brother. You know what's interesting about this story, too, is does Jesus ever tell us what the older brother did after the father came and said, come on, join the party? What did he do? Did he go in or did he stay out? What do you think? We don't know, right? We don't know. Did he go in or did he go out? And I think that's exactly what Jesus wanted those who were listening. He wanted the Pharisees who were there who were listening going, are you the older brother? You're the one who's always been a part of the family. Are you going to celebrate what I'm doing in this world of rescuing those who need rescuing? Or are you going to stay out? What are you going to do? Choose your own adventure. And that's the question for us. What are you going to do? Many of us here are older brothers. I'm an older brother. Not in real life, but in the, <laughs> I only have three sisters. He's saying we're an older brother in the faith. What do we do? Are we going in or are we going out? Are we celebrating or are we not? But he also has the same kind of choose your own adventure to the younger brothers, to the 
tax collectors that were there, the notorious sinners that were listening. How are you going to respond as the younger brother? Are you going to stay out? Are you going to keep trying to do it on your own? Are you going to turn and return back to the father? What are you going to do? So let's talk about these two Old, these two brothers, older brother or younger brother. Let me talk to us older brothers here for a while. There's a great, uh, in, in, in a commentary I read this, it was great, I wanted to share it with you. It says, the older brother's story reveals the possibility of living in the father's house and failing to understand the father's heart. Isn't that crazy? We can live and spend time in the father's house, but we can miss the father's heart. We can forget what it's all about. And Jesus modeled the Father's heart. Jesus showed us what the Father's heart's all about, that he was reaching out, that he was going, that he was pursuing. He was doing what an older brother was supposed to do. He went and he had you know, meals with tax collectors. He talked with others. He invited them around the table, even when he went after Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He sat at the table. He spent time with him. And in that same story, in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. He said, this is my mission, to seek and save those who are lost. He modeled it. This is the Father's heart. Matthew 9, verse 12, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This should give hope to all of us. It should give hope to all of us. I wish we had the place full of those who, who don't have a relationship with God today. Those who are listening online that don't know Christ. This is the hope that we have. That, a God came, that God came through Jesus Christ for that very purpose. To say there is a way through. But what Jesus is saying is if we want to have the Father's heart, it's the responsibility of the found to become the seekers. This is just like in the game. You know, once you're found, what are you, next round, you're, the one, you're it. You're the one who's going to do the, 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 the seeking now. When you've been found, when we have discovered what it's like to come back and to be in the Father's house, it is our responsibility to seek out and to find others. Now, we, we talk about, you know, in the church, we might say, you know, save the lost. Jesus said, I've come to save the lost. The lost can feel overwhelming, can it? The lost. We can look at this world and go, how in the world are we going to make a difference? It feels like we're losing, uh, we're losing ground in America. We're losing ground in this culture. And how in the world can we continue to, to reach people? It seems like people maybe don't want to have anything to do with the church. Let's just hunker together. Let's just focus on ourselves. Let's not lose what we've got. But no, the, the loss. How do we reach them? Okay, it feels overwhelming. I can't make a difference there. But maybe you see the lost and you say, you know, you can't save the lost. And that's true. You can't save the lost. But you know what? You can save the one. You can't save the lost. We're not going to save the lost, but we can save the one. I'm sure you've probably heard the, the old story of the boy and the starfish on the ocean. The, the, the high tide has, has pushed these starfish that washed up on the shore. And in the morning, the boy's walking along, and he picks up a starfish, and he chucks it in. And if he's a boy, he'd probably try to get to spin pretty good and see if he could maybe get to skip a little bit. No animal, no cruelty to animals, but just, you know, having fun. He's saving them, by the way. So he picks up, and he does another one, and he's throwing them back in. And an older man is watching him. And he watches him for a little bit of time. And when, he, when the boy comes up to him, he, he says, you know, um, there's a lot of miles of, of beach and so many starfish. You know, you, you can't save them all. You can't make a difference. Real encouraging, older man. <laughs> and the boy just kind of listened politely. And he bent over and he picked up the, another starfish and he chucked it in. And he said, but I made a difference for this one. And he went on and he did it again. 
And I think this is the idea. We can get overwhelmed with how are we going to cover miles and miles of beach of, of, of starfish? Well, just start with the ones you've got. Who is your one? If you're the older brother, who is your one? Who is the one that, that, that God's saying, this is your responsibility to go after? Maybe it is literally a sibling in your family, somebody that God has, has placed you in proximity with. Maybe it's a great friend. Maybe it's a coworker, somebody at school, somebody on one of your teams or a place where you, you, know, you, you do recreation or have hobbies you spend time with. But don't get overwhelmed with so many things. Get focused on the one. Who is the one? Is there a specific name that comes to mind right now? that God can put on your heart and say, this is the one. Now, this isn't a project, but this is someone to be in relationship with, someone to say, I'm available, I'm here, somebody you pray for, somebody who you just try to live your life in front of and, and share, share Christ with them. What an opportunity to identify the one. Now, let me take a, a moment here to talk to the younger, the younger brothers, the wanderers and the seekers. Maybe, some, maybe you're here at church today because somebody asked you to come with them. Maybe you're, you're seeking. Maybe you're at a point where you're realizing, um, you know, I'm, I've tried it on my own. It's not working, but I'm curious. I don't know, if, can I go back to the Father? Can I find faith? You're, there, there's a curiosity there. You're wondering, you're seeking. I don't know where you're at in that journey, just like those that were listening to Jesus have to decide, what do we do? Do we stay or do we go? But before it's so easy for us who maybe have been followers of Christ for some time to say, okay, now this is for those who don't know Jesus yet. Like I said, we're all prone to wander. We are all lost souls in search of home. We can have been with the Father and left again. We can, we can have places in our lives where we stray. And Jesus is ultimately saying to all of us, come back home. Come back home. He's saying, stop wandering on your own. Let me carry you. Some of us need to be carried. Some of us need to be brought back. Some of us need to give those little, little signs that say, here, you know, here I am, I've been hiding too well. I wanna be found. I wanna be found, but it takes a step to, to, to come towards Christ. And I think that's what we see in the story, the turning point of the story. The turning point of the story is when, uh, where, when the, the lost son, it says this, he, he came to his senses. I love that line. It's like the story flips in that moment. He came to his senses. Because what happened was first he, was, he, he realized the situation that he was in but he understood that he couldn't stay there and that ultimately he needed to do something else. So he thought in his mind, here's what I'm gonna do. Man, at home I have a better, even the hired hands have a better. I'm gonna go, he made his plan, I'm gonna confess. I'm gonna go to my father, I'm gonna say I'm not worthy. And so some of you might be thinking like, all right, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna confess my sins. I gotta get right with God. I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna try to do these things, but you never do it. You're caught in a, in a place of thinking. You're caught in a place of just wanting to do it. Listen, stop thinking yourself to death and believe yourself to life. Stop thinking yourself to death. Stop thinking and waiting at some point in the future, at this point in time, I'm gonna do it, I gotta get this right and this right. The, the, the son came to his senses and said, you know what, I'm gonna go to my father in Luke, verse 18, I will go home. He made the step, I will go home, and he did. And I'll say, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. You know what that is? It's repentance. It's repentance. He had a change in his heart. He understood what he had, what he was missing, what he longed for. He owned his failures. He owned the struggles. And he just said, you know, I want to come home to my father. Will you accept me? Will you take me in? Even though he understood, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And we have the hope that we know how Jesus responds. We know how our heavenly father responds because of the story. He didn't stand there with arms crossed and said, all right, prove it. Show me your worthiness. Come back and earn it for a while. 
let's see if you really have made a difference. No, he instantly restored him to sonship. And he wants to restore you into relationship with him. And he wants to throw a party. <laughs> he wants to throw a party. When we are found, Jesus flips the script in our lives. When we do the seeking, Jesus flips the script in our lives. It, it brings us to life. And you know what I love? And again, all these stories, a party is thrown. And I want our place, this place, I want our church, I want our Sunday morning's worship to be a place of celebration. Not just one Sunday on Easter, but every single Sunday. If you wonder why the music's loud, if you wonder why we want to clap, it's, if you wonder why we want to laugh, it's because we have reason to celebrate. Don't be the party pooper out in the lobby. Don't be the party pooper who doesn't come to church. Don't be the party pooper who says the drums are too loud. Don't be that party pooper. Because there's a party that needs to happen. And as older brothers, we need to celebrate that. And don't, let's not just sit here by ourselves. Let's bring others who are lost. Let's bring others who need to be found. Because as they sat before Jesus, there is hope and there's healing. There is not condemnation in this place. And there's life to be found. And so we want to be a, a church that embraces the younger brother, that embraces the lost, that doesn't get so caught up in our own righteousness, but that we celebrate what God is doing among us. And that's our call for us today. And even as we head into Easter in these next couple of weeks, who is the one that God is placing on your heart? Because we want to celebrate that. When we have baptisms on Easter Sunday, let's celebrate. That's why we give party whistles on Easter, because it's a party. This is the thing that we celebrate. And if we think we're celebrating, heaven is celebrating all the more, as it tells us in this passage. And we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. And maybe today you need to take that step and stop thinking yourself to death. Maybe you've been in this church for dozens of years and you think, 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 and now you go, I couldn't possibly, you know, now come and give my life to Christ. What will people think and say? What if I get baptized now? What are people going to say? Come on, we're going to celebrate. God's going to celebrate. Take that step of obedience. Just take that step and be welcomed back into the family, into the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the truth that you share in such simple stories. Imagine you teaching God and there's just these notorious sinners. What a great way to describe them. Father, people who maybe thought they had no chance in the kingdom of God, who weren't religious enough or holy enough or dressed the right way or talked the right way. But God, you, your arms were wide enough to embrace them. And Father, the, the religious folks, God, how easy it is for me to fall into that category and to start thinking I've earned something or deserved something because of my years of faithfully following you. But God, maybe not even looking and seeing my own falling short the places where I'm wandering, and God, where I'm hiding. Father, help us all to come into your light. Now, God, it's not just a blanket embrace. There's repentance, God. You ask us to come to our senses. You ask us to acknowledge that we can't do life apart from you. Help us today, God, to embrace your forgiveness, to stop thinking ourselves to death, God, and start to believe ourselves into life with you and to feel your embrace, your restoration, your love, and the party that you want to throw for us. I thank you that you aren't a God who stayed distant in heaven, but God, that you came close, that you pursued us, that you came to seek and to save, that you broke down every barrier so that we could have relationship with you. God, may we be that kind of people. God, may we be that kind of church. Open our eyes to those around us, and Father, may we celebrate what God is doing, what you are doing in this place and in the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.